Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Washington Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. A chaotic week in America that couldn't be better scripted if you were Russian or Chinese. Republicans torpedo their own border Ukraine deal that Kiev desperately needs, handing Vladimir Putin a victory. The Supreme Court again hears a case involving Donald Trump. A special counsel labels President Joe Biden an old man. Vladimir Zelensky replaces his popular top general. China's economic woes worsen as Beijing spreads a bizarre rumor of civil war in Texas and the search for a deal to end fighting in Gaza. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many and august affiliations. Everybody, uh, good morning. Uh, welcome back. Uh, and, um, you know, every once in a while, Washington uh, used to work punctuated by occasional crap shows, whereas now the default setting is is crap show with occasional successes. Michael, chaotic week. Start us off. I know that you can only join us for about 10 or 15 minutes before you've got to go. Um uh, after demanding immigration and border reform for decades and connecting the deal to clear more aid for Ukraine, Republicans then rejected the biggest immigration and border overhaul in decades that they've long argued for. The House failed to impeach uh, Homeland Security uh, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas with uh, a friend of the show, Mike Gallagher, holding firm in voting against the move. Um, walk us through in any order you want to do it about what happened, but also more importantly, what it means uh, for the future. Uh, with particular focus on whether or not we get a supplemental in any other form, given that Chuck Schumer uh, and others have said, hey, look, let's let's just have 60 billion for Ukraine, uh, an Israel aid package, you know, put a little bit of Gaza and, and Taiwan money into it as well. Back to where the president was right about one hundred five billion dollars. OK, uh, there's a lot to unpack here and I can do it quickly. And I think the best way to do it is in chronological order, because it's just been a crazy uh, six days and, it, and it's not over yet. So last Saturday. Uh, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, uh, announced that he was going to have the House vote on a clean standalone bill for Israel uh, and a larger number, about six, uh, $17.16 billion, but also did not include a lot of the humanitarian assistance that the administration and Democrats supported. Um, then it didn't take long for the House Freedom Caucus to crap all over that and say they were opposed to it because it was clean and didn't include any offsets. Uh, and within uh, two days, Biden said he would veto the bill and Democrats came out uh, opposed to it as well. The next day on Sunday, the Senate negotiators finally released their uh, bipartisan border agreement and the, the supplemental, uh, which included the $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, $20 billion in new border funding, $10 billion in humanitarian aid, $5 billion for Indo-PACOM. But you know, this border deal that Langford had negotiated with uh, Senator Murphy and Senator Sinema really uh, amounted to one of the toughest border and immigration laws in modern history. It attacked asylum, expulsion. Uh, it also addressed the fentanyl crisis that Republicans have been howling about, which, including the Fend Off Fentanyl Act was included. It also included the Afghan Adjustment Act, which would allow Afghans evacuated to the U.S. during our military withdrawal in 2021 to become permanent residents and citizens. Um, right. But later that day, um, Speaker Johnson came out and said the bill is dead on arrival. His uh, statements were followed by other statements from Republican leaders like uh, Steve Scalise and Lee Stefanik saying the bill is a non-starter. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting that later that day, Schumer had said uh, that he has never worked more closely with Leader McConnell on any piece of legislation as we did on this. And I would think that would be a good thing. And instead, right. uh, McConnell's uh, critics just, just pounced on him. Senator Mike Lee, Senator Josh Hawley, Ron Johnson all came out uh, criticizing McConnell. And it just made me long for, you know, yesteryear, was Reagan criticized for working with Democrats to get a tax cut through or to do tax reform in 86 or to work with Tip O'Neill to save Social Security? But this is the environment we're in. And also that night, you know, Trump surrogates like his son and other spokespeople came out uh, spreading lots of lies about the bill, saying it amounted to amnesty. Uh, and it was really, you know, took less than 24 hours for the whole thing to unravel. So now on Monday, uh, many GOP senators came out against the proposal. And uh, McConnell then had to recommend to his colleagues 
to vote against uh, cloture, which is a procedural vote to move forward on the bill. Even though McConnell backed the underlying bill, he had to make this recommendation after it became clear that most Republicans were preparing to vote no. Uh, and again, you know, this again was this was a bill that was endorsed by the National Border Patrol Council. Right. In a normal right. political environment, that would sway a lot of Republicans. That group endorsed Donald Trump in 2020, but we're not in a normal political environment. So now we go to Tuesday uh, and the House decides on Tuesday. That's when they're going to vote to impeach uh, Alejandro uh, Mayorkas. And it failed. Uh, three Republicans joined the Democrats in voting against it. Now, the Republicans thought they could lose three votes because uh, they were checking you know, based on uh, the attendance that they projected uh, because Congressman Al Green is a Democrat. Uh, had been in the hospital for emergency surgery. But in a stunning moment toward the end of the vote, they literally wheeled him in a wheelchair in his hospital gown to cast the vote uh, to, to uh, make it go down. So, and the three people who voted against it, you, know, you mentioned um, Mike Gallagher, we'll get to him in a second, but also Ken Buck and Tom McClintock. Right. Um, now, the leadership knew these people voting against it. And there's, a, there's an unfair yarn being spun against Mike Gallagher that this was a surprise. Mike Gallagher made it crystal clear to Mark Green, who is the chairman of Homeland Security and to leadership, uh, that he was going to vote against this. And he right. correctly has said it's hypocritical to impeach Mayorkas after arguing against the same type of action during the Trump administration. And Gallagher also said Republicans are opening the future GOP cabinet secretaries to impeachment. And can you imagine if Trump is president next year, what kind of people he's going to put in his cabinet? And we're going to be subject to the, the same tit for tat. So I think Gallagher exhibited tremendous courage uh, in what he did, and he's taking a lot of heat for it uh, unnecessarily. Uh, and even though the vote failed, they plan to bring this up again next week because Steve Scalise will be back. Um, uh, he's been uh, out being treated for cancer. They've announced he will be back next week. So we do expect uh, Marcus' vote to happen and probably will be impeached next week. After that failure, right after that, they then took up the Israel aid vote, knowing that the president would veto it. And then the Democrats were not going to support it. And since they didn't have support from the right flank, they had to do this on suspension. And that failed uh, as well, uh, which takes us into Wednesday, where the Republicans, and joined by a few Democrats, voted against advancing the bipartisan border deal that was and supplemental that was announced on, on Sunday night. So Schumer you know, said that day that he intends to move forward with a, a plan B uh, after that, that, that failed vote, which will include the bill minus uh, the border policy, the border funding. So the price tag for the new bill is somewhere just north of $95 billion. White House announced that they would support that uh, going forward. So now the Senate GOP has got to figure out what they're going to do. So they met on Wednesday and had a very contentious meeting. Apparently, uh, Mitt Romney and, and Ted Cruz got into a screaming match with each other. Senator Daines, who is on defense appropriations, but he does chair the campaign wing, the NRSC, the Republicans, came out saying that you know if we if they pass this, this um, the foreign aid portion without the border component, that they would kneecap the GOP candidates in key races who've been calling for no uh, foreign aid without the border. Uh, but Senator Thune, who's the whip, you know, I, I give him a lot of credit. He came out and just said, look, this package is going to happen at some point. So we need to stop being pussies and just vote. And he's right. So and that seems to be uh, what's happening now. So yesterday uh, there was the first procedural vote on this package, which did pass 67 to 32. 17 Republicans voted to move it forward. Um, there's going to be another procedural vote uh, tonight uh, at seven o'clock. Uh, there will be votes all through the weekend. Uh, and probably into early next week, there's, they still get to figure out the amendment process, how those will work, what amendments they're going to allow. Uh, but there is a sense of optimism that this may get out of the Senate and then head to the House. And then what happens there? Right. So if Johnson does take this up, does this impede you know, or imperil his future? Uh, and, you know, Congressman Adam Smith, who is the ranking Democrat on the Armed Services Committee, said, you know, um, if they send this bill uh, to the House and <clears throat> Dems that and they take it up for a vote that the Dems would help Mike Johnson if he faced a motion to vacate. Uh, right. And so but Jeffries has said, too, that they will use every legislative tool at their proposal uh, at, at their disposal, which also means a discharge petition. More and more Democrats are talking about that. If Johnson does not put it on the floor. They believe they can get a few Republicans to vote for it and force a vote. So this is still not it's not over yet. How do you war game support for Ukraine, right? It's dicey in the House, right? It looks like if Johnson brought it to a vote, Ukraine aid and Israel aid would get through. The issue is whether he will do that. And in the Senate, it looks like there are 60 votes for it, right? How, how does right. this play out, do you think? Well, you're right. Because right. Ukraine think... is desperate, okay? I mean, bluntly. Yes. I, I still believe that if Johnson brought this to the floor for a vote, it would get over 300 votes in support of it for Ukraine and, and for Israel. 
The question is, does he do it or not? Uh, or does he try and, and break up the bill in some way? I mean, and really nobody knows, right, what's, what's going to happen here, what Johnson's going to decide to do. Uh, but I also, you know, look, it's unprecedented to do a discharge petition. I think that we've talked about this before during the debt ceiling, and I think the last successful one, I think, was back in 2014. But it right. doesn't mean that that, that can't be done. Uh, so I, I, I know Ukraine's desperate. Their supporters in the Hill know they're desperate. Uh, this is still not going to happen anytime soon, but I do think that there still is a path to victory here that we should not give up on. And uh, very uh, briefly before you go, the special counsel declined to bring charges against President Biden over uh, his uh, having classified uh, documents, wrote a 300 page report, uh, the um, special counsel, her. uh, And in it, he said that the commander in chief is a well-meaning man with a poor memory, a statement the president obviously took exception with uh, emotional press conference last night, uh, during which, you know, he said he's still got it, uh, you know, suggested the public. Uh, you know, that it's the press and not the public that has a problem with his age, uh, but also unfortunately made a misstep about, you know, CC and, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Mexican president. Um, how does this play into the broader narrative uh, that Republicans in particular are spinning, but also Democrats themselves are worried about ultimately? Or is this just the tempest in a teacup that you think passes quickly? Well, I mean, look, it's still early, and I'm, so I'm hopeful that this passes quickly. But I was with uh, at dinner last night with several members of Congress who were reading some of these statements from that report and basically saying, this is, we're just reading a campaign commercial that they expect the Trump folks right. to lift verbatim uh, some of this and use these in campaign commercials. So it doesn't help. And I also think the fact that the president is refusing the traditional Super Bowl, pre Super Bowl interview also doesn't help because it makes people, it raises questions as to why. He's t- not taking an opportunity to speak to all Americans. Right? He doesn't right. get that opportunity very often. Right? He, he, the Super Bowl interview is one. The State of the Union address is another. Outside of that, there's not a lot. So is there a reason why? And, and I think it's a mistake for them to feed that narrative. Uh, but this just plays into what we've talked about before, where this election becomes the lesser of two evils. Oh, my gosh, I'm worried about Joe Biden and his mental acuity. Oh, but Trump is a danger to our democracy, and he's mentally unstable. Um, I think – Again, the Biden folks have to take command of this and not just warn us about the dangers of Trump, not only talk about their successes, but also talk about what the next four years are going to look like under President Biden. And we're yet to hear that. And we need to have a message of hope and unity going going forward. Um, Michael, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Bon voyage and uh, have a great week. And we'll look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, Dove, um, how does this look to the rest of the world uh, as far as you're concerned, right? I mean, in uh, the midst of this, you couldn't, uh, you almost couldn't script this uh, better. All of this chaos is happening. And then Tucker Carlson, of course, is is talking to Vladimir Putin, who's, you know, spewing his lies and misinformation for, for two hours. Uh, and, and, you know, we have Xi and uh, Putin uh, reaffirming their vows of limitless friendship uh, as we uh, welcome the year of the dragon. How does all of this look to the world as somebody who's got friends all around the world? Well, um, I actually had dinner last night with some European specialists and some Europeans and somebody also from Mexico. And there two observations. One is, yeah, the Europeans are totally depressed. I don't know what what they are more depressed or confused, probably both. Um, Clearly, the same applies to the rest of the world. Um, there are very few countries that are saying, just hold on, you know, the world isn't coming to an end. So, yes, there. this is we're sending all kinds of terrible signals. But the second thing is, who's sending the signals? It's not just the behavior of, you know, Congress and all that. But listening to folks speaking last night, we ourselves who are concerned about this, are telling the world how depressed we are. And by doing that, by the people who are terrified of Trump, we are terrifying the rest of the world even more than they already are terrified, if you can follow me. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that even if the guy became president, we still have a Congress that will see him as a lame duck at some point. We will have a Supreme Court that's not necessarily going to kowtow to him. We have states that don't necessarily have to kowtow to him. It's going to be a difficult time 
but it's not the end of the United States. It's not even the end of the United States in terms of what we will do in the world. And so we have to be careful about those of us who have a problem with them, have to be careful about how we say that to the other, to the rest of the world, because those folks on the other sides of the ocean and in Latin America and in Canada are scared enough as it is. But yes, they're very scared. Um, Patrick, uh, let me uh, bring you uh, into this. Uh, as I uh, mentioned, it's uh, Lunar New Year. We're going into the year of the dragon. Uh, and it was an opportunity for Putin and Xi uh, to reinforce their uh, partnership. How is Beijing, especially at a time when it's in uh, greater uh, economic uh, chaos uh, at home, the government is no longer bailing out uh, investors, uh, markets are dropping, uh, there's disinflation that's going on. A lot of people are taking a bath on the property market, right? I mean, Evergrande has been an issue that we've discussed uh, uh, often. How is Beijing viewing all of this and trying to capitalize on all of it? Um, given, unfortunately, you know, p- people can tune, tune into Chinese TV here in the United States, right? I'm sure there are some Americans who might trust Chinese and, and RT more than they trust uh, American mainstream media. Indeed, I'm amazed when I tune the radio and suddenly find I'm listening to Sputnik radio or something um, here in America. Because the propaganda organs of both Moscow and Beijing have grown considerably in recent years. In fact, there was a great uh, study out of Citizen Lab, which follows the digital media, talking about how China is now running so-called news sites in more than 30 countries that are just filled with pro-Chinese propaganda. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We saw this out of the State Department's Global Engagement Center report in the end of last September, talking about the global influence campaign. So it's, it's a real campaign. And they're able to amplify the craziness that happens in American domestic politics. And that's one of the problems. And that's why we have to have and project greater unity and confidence than we're doing right now if we're going to continue to have significant global leadership. So China's hoping to uh, improve the balance of this power. Um, They've got tremendous problems. The economic problems you mentioned uh, are real uh, this week. It was the fact that uh, they had to sack the uh, stock market regulator. Uh, he was the scapegoat for the fact that Chinese stocks have lost more than $5 trillion in the last two years. In that same period, by the way, American equities have gone up more than $6 trillion. That's a big cut, not just to the Chinese economy, but to the people with power in China. It's estimated that half of uh, China's wealth is in the pockets of 8% of the elite of China. Um, And they were the losers in that uh, Chinese stock market. And now the deflation that's sinking in, and the January numbers with the consumer price index were terrible, and that may have been partly the anomaly uh, of uh, the lunar year starting in February. But nonetheless, they've had 16 months of uh, deflationary uh, activity at the the factory gates. And people are really worried that this is not going to be saved by consumerism. They're not going to be bailed out by the Chinese government. Um, and the markets are are, are reeling. Um, so you can have China's very weak, or you can have no China's very strong. They're with Xi Jinping on the telephone, uh, essentially uh, absolutely joined at the hip over this global security initiative, this idea that sovereignty uh, is paramount. They must stop the foreign medicine uh, activities of this American hegemony. Uh, and that's really where they're joined. But beyond that, they're conflicted. Uh, there's a good article essay in uh, Economist this week talking about uh, you know China's torn between uh, living with controlled chaos or, or or kind of going full out on the block politics that Putin wants, which is really disruptive. Um, and Putin's disinformation campaign is just fierce right now. And and what I read into that is not that he wants a big opening with Trump, although he sees that as a possibility. Hence the interview uh, with with Tucker Carlson. I think he senses blood that that America is weak, needs deals, right. uh, and he can really gain. He's he's dividing and conquering. It's a, it's his playbook. He's playing it everywhere. We just have to be aware that this is how they're playing it. And China's doing essentially the same thing, but they're more willing to look for opportunities for cooperation with us. Um, I would also uh, point out that 
the Chinese are also uh, working heroically to help uh, Russia and Ukraine, right? I mean, they're playing both sides of this uh, equation, but if you look at it, the preponderance, whether or not it's in machine tools or DJI drones or whatever, are flowing to the Russian side in a way maybe uh, that they are not flowing uh, to and, the Ukrainian side. Go ahead. Yeah, and the footnote on that is, th but they're messaging differently, right? So they're telling Correct. us, they're telling the Europeans that they're not helping, they don't support the Ukraine war, and they're telling Russia, by the way, look, we're, we're helping you. Although I, I have to say, uh, Sam Benden of the Center for Naval Analyses, very talented analyst, noted that this is really a unique conflict where the Chinese are playing a prominent role on both sides, that some of the subcomponents that the Ukrainians are using in their drones uh, are are actually of Chinese origin and, and that the Ukrainians couldn't do it without Chinese help, at least on that front. So I yeah. find it. Uh, an utter, utterly fascinating, um, uh, you know, is it the Ferengis? Isn't that the trade empire in in, in Star Wars that is. that is that is trying to play it down the middle uh, while while profiting at the end of it? Well, um, one of the one of the footnote on that is just simply that one of the costs of this Ukraine war for for Russia is they've got to outsource a lot more activity and financing to China. So we see that in in critical areas to Russia, like the Arctic. They're giving China huge opening, uh, and so right. there's a there's a big shift going on because of this uh, relationship. So it, it does matter, even if uh, the Chinese are being opportunists. Jim, I'm going to get to you in just a second, but a quick word uh, from our sponsors. Uh, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Uh, Jim. Uh, you and I were at a uh, terrific uh, event. Uh, you actually got to go to the breakfast with uh, former uh, Polish uh, president and Nobel Prize winner Lech Wałęsa. Um, and, you know, he made the case why it's imperative that America lead in the world. The United States is the only country that can do this uh, and that the United States has to step up its global propaganda campaign that, you know, his point is, um, you know, it's unprecedented to put Russia on the ropes like this. And it's imperative for the U.S. to play a role to try to drive leadership change uh, in Russia. He's uh, like, you know, targeted propaganda can help. Talk to us about sort of the broader chaos, but also Vowinsa's very powerful message that, you know, that fighting won't accomplish it. But by very subtle means, the United States can actually turn the narrative but we have to work harder in order to try to do that globally. What did, what did you, he, by the way, he also made a fascinating point about epochal change and that right is left and left is right. Uh, you know, and the Christian parties aren't really Christian parties either anymore, right? That we're in sort of a dramatic shift in just about everything that we have yet to come to grips with, whether on social media or anything. I mean, I thought it was a very philosophical and interesting take. But anyway, take this in any direction you want to take it. Well, you know, thanks, uh, Vago, for raising that uh, that wonderful speech, and which was uh, uh, it was a bookend with the earlier in the morning, the breakfast where he delivered remarks in a more informal manner, uh, saying similar things, but the emotion that he was speaking in and the and talking about um, how our grandchildren would never forgive us for missing this opportunity to finish the job, to finish the job that started in 1990 with the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, and to have a Russia that is not the aggressive Russia that we're dealing with now. Um, he, uh, you know, it was a wonderful speech, but I, I think what I want to do is also mention uh, to, about the question earlier to Dove about, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what are the Europeans thinking about Trump? What, you know, you were asking, uh, how does this coming across globally, Trump? And I think I, I'd like to add, I agree with what Dove said, and I just wanted to add one thing in terms of Europe. And this came out yesterday with um, with uh, Lech Valencia's visit. The, I think Europeans increasingly over the past couple of months are worried less about Trump, but more about pending war with Russia. Rusi has put out a very good piece uh, day or yesterday uh, that echoed this feeling that seems to be uh, heard more and more in European capitals about this potential of war uh, right around the corner. Uh, nations have uh, nation national governments have given as time estimates two years three years five years but the point uh, that that seems to be being made by governments is to their populations you need to get ready for this 
Uh, and this has not been part of the conversation in Europe for, for decades. Uh, right. But uh, this Rusi piece says, um, finally, uh, the governments are leveling with their people uh, across Europe, uh, saying um, in their various fashions, saying you need to get ready for this. So this is something that uh, Lech Walesa, uh yesterday in his speeches was echoing. He was saying that uh, the U.S. has got to lead, that the U.S. has got to lead, particularly on global issues. And he was talking about climate change, et cetera. But he also said and, that- And technology, right? I mean, he was also talking about you know means of mass communication that are completely different today. And both very positive, but also potentially extremely dangerous, you know, especially in the wake of, uh, you know, hearings we had in Congress last week. Right. No, that's exactly right. But, you know, he he delivered a message, too, saying that uh, if U.S. leadership was missing and we went down this road with particularly with a rogue Russia uh, controlling a lot of a lot of Europe, uh, that we could end up in a state of war that could lead, and, and this is what he was saying, lead to uh, the end of life as we know it. And uh, not that that's necessarily something new, but he was really saying this as we've got to wake up in Washington. We have to wake up to where this could ultimately end up. And, you know, he's 80 years old. He made the trip to Washington just to try to spread this message on the Hill and elsewhere about U.S. leadership and the importance of supporting Ukraine. Uh, and uh, I wish we could have this whole show on what he said, uh, but I won't take up much more of your time on it. <laughs> uh, it, it was uh, terrific, and I commend people to check out uh, Max uh, Bergman uh, of CSIS, uh, uh, moderated the conversation, asked a lot of very good questions, some good in questions from the audience, and uh, 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 President uh, Vowinsa spoke through an interpreter uh, and uh, was his uh, normal, uh, funny uh, self. And the report you're talking about, uh, Jim, is by uh, Ed Arnold, who is with the uh, Royal United Services Institute. NATO societies must be ready for war, and it came out late last month. Um, let me uh, quickly uh, shift uh, gears um, and ask you uh, about the change that Zelensky uh, has made in replacing his highly popular uh, chief of defense staff, General Valery uh, Zaluzhny, uh, the, uh, now the former ground forces commander, uh, is uh, the boss, General Alexander uh, Sierski, uh, who has uh, been a central fi uh, figure uh, in the ground campaign and uh, also well regarded uh, in the force, even if he is uh, seen as a hard driving, right? I mean, if you're an infantryman, you might be a little bit less excited uh, about some of the positions you feel maybe your senior commanders have, have put you through. How perilous is the situation right now? And what does this change mean? Um, because last week, we started thinking that the solution was out. And then Zelensky said, I have faith in my chief of uh, defense staff. And then obviously not so much given what we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks. Anyway, what, what does this mean for the vector of the war and the condition the Ukrainians are in? And then I'm going to go to Dove here uh, in a minute uh, to talk a little bit about mechanics on what it is we should be doing if Congress doesn't do the right thing. Well, I think it's Congress not doing the right thing, which is what's placing Ukraine into peril. I think the uh, swapping out of the commanders, as, as we said last week, I mean, that happens in warfare. Uh, I mean, you know, MacArthur and Korea, I mean, World War II, I mean, certainly the U.S. Right. replaced a lot of generals early on. But seriously, we have to remember, too, that he was um, he was the commander of that offensive last summer. Uh, well, two summers ago um, when they took back a, a large part of what the Russians had captured. So, you know, he has a good track record. I don't think necessarily uh, uh, his taking over of the helm uh, is going to, to lead to disaster necessarily. Um, uh, and so I think we just have to give them some room to uh, let him take control and and see what happens. And again, we don't know the full story about uh, uh, Zaluzny. You know, he gave a, not, not just an article and an interview. He gave a couple of interviews where he was saying some things that um, he probably shouldn't have been saying and certainly ring an alarm that Zelensky needed to hear. Maybe he has sacrificed himself on speaking truth to power. I don't know. But. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, we'll have to see how Sierski does. Uh, and uh, but I think the most important thing of all is we've got to get assistance in one form or another uh, into Ukraine as fast as we can. They're, they are sorely lacking 
uh, ammunition and a lot of other other supplies that they need to hold the hold the line if we're going to see a Russian counteroffensive uh, in the next couple of months. This summer could be just disastrous uh, if there is a lag time in delivery of munitions. So uh, we need to make that go. I, I'm more concerned about that than this, this change in, in commanders. Um, Dove, uh, uh, what, you know, you several times have talked about mechanisms, right, as a former comptroller who is used to searching through cushions <laughs> and finding sometimes creative ways of getting important things done and keeping programs on track, have talked about some of the things that we could and should be doing. Um, Mike McCord uh, is, uh, like you, a Hall of Fame comptroller. Uh, but obviously, this also depends on the administration. W what are some techniques the administration can be using? I mean, one of the there was a terrific grand event yesterday on PPBE uh, reform, uh, and the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, Dr. Bill LaPlante, was saying, "Look, I mean, budgetary hiccups and CRs and all of that is is actually what's most meaningfully disrupting our ability to rebuild our arsenal." Right? I mean, there are supply chain issues. But it's the funding and security. It's it's actually moving the amount of money that's needed. You know, now we're looking at a one percent effective cut uh, to to the to the budget, uh, given all of the things that's happening again, which impact the new starts that he's he's trying to get underway. What are some of the things the administration can be doing, and that you would recommend to try to get as much aid into Ukrainian hands as quickly as possible? Because literally, for want of artillery shells, Ukrainians are dying. And as Jack Watling of Rusi has pointed out, a collapse starts slowly and then goes very quickly. Well, first of all, the defense budget itself is under tremendous pressure. Uh, Byron Callen, our friend who's on your show as well, has a, a good observation about the Army's cancellation of the Farah helicopter, um, basically due to uh, budgetary constraints. And quite frankly, I think one of the reasons the money is, is, has gone is because it's a, it has to go to replenish our ammunition stocks, which we've been giving to the Ukrainians. So there's pressure right there. And um, in order to get what we want to get to the Ukrainians, and uh, it is artillery shells, but it's not only artillery shells. I've been arguing right. that what we can do is lease this stuff. Now, in one do we don't normally lease things, number one. Number two is we don't normally lease artillery shells. But, you know, uh, Roosevelt's Lend-Lease thing actually worked. It helped save the British until we got into right. the war. And um, afterwards, we could always forgive the debt if we wanted to. Uh, it would be a budgetary cost, of course. But, you know, when we're running trillions of dollars of, of deficits anyway, the amount of money we're talking about is a drop in the bucket. Um, there are other so thoughts about how to do this. Um, the point is, even if the Congress doesn't give Ukraine the money, and I think it personally, I think it will. I think that um, Johnson's not going to want to be seen as cutting off the Israelis, leave aside the Ukrainians. Uh, because the Ukrainians are actually, you know, they're they're sort of the undercard to the to the main event, which is the the uh, assistance to Israel. Um, I think it'll pass. But if it doesn't pass, there are ways and, and leasing is one of them. Uh, how do you think the department, though, uh, surmounts some of the other problems to get some of these programs going? Right. I mean, the entire effort of the senior leadership of the department has been to increase war production. And we're finding because of budgetary hiccups, you know, Secretary Kendall has talked about this. You know, we we have some really thoughtful long range plans that we've set up and we can't get a damn real budget in order to get this stuff moving year after year. Right. Ultimately, short of passing a budget, I mean, what other mechanisms do you think the department can use to try to get this stuff moving well um my predecessor bob hale who definitely belongs in the hall of fame of comptrollers before uh, uh, uh who served after i did um found a way to uh maintain the budget even when the sequester was going on uh he moved money around uh it was basically anything that hadn't been uh, appropriated uh was fair game uh, not, hadn't been spent out rather 
uh, as opposed to appropriated, uh, was fair game for being uh, reprogrammed and moved around. Uh, and the same could be done here. The, the problem is anything new. And if we want to get ahead of the Chinese, I Patrick is absolutely right. The Chinese have been lying about their economic numbers for years, and now it's just they can't hide it anymore. Um, but if we want to stay ahead of them, then we need to be able to have new starts. And you can't have new starts unless you have a new budget. That is the fundamental problem. Yes, we can move monies around. And, I'm, you know, Mike McCord was Bob Hale's deputy. And Mike is just as good as Bob. Uh, he'll move the money around. He'll keep the trains rolling. What he cannot do is start new programs. And we've got a lot of new programs in the works that we simply must fund with new money. And if we don't have the new money, we're in trouble. I mean, it's 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 just literally the most idiotic thing. Time is of the essence. And as we're screwing around with this, as folks literally are playing naked politics, we do not have the resources with which to recapitalize our own stocks and then be able to help our allies and partners ultimately. I mean, they're all looking at us like we're a bunch of freaking morons. Uh, and it's astonishing to me that really it's for the interests of a man who wants to become elected president, who has a lot of power and is exerting it with his conference. Uh, and, you know, and it's it's uh, uh, stunning. Uh, Patrick, uh, you've let, been me very just add, let me let me just add one thing before sure. uh, you turn over to Patrick, which is this. Um, Putin has uh, been looking into Russian history. And when Lequilensa speaks about what he speaks about, that's because he knows that his country was divided three times with Russia taking a third of it each time and that Russia again moved in, of course, during the Cold War. Mr. Putin is not going to stop at Ukraine. It's as simple as that. Uh, I uh, completely uh, agree with you on that. And that's one of the points uh, that President Volensa made is if, if you think he's stopping there, you're uh, you got another thing coming. Uh, we, Patrick, we have to discuss uh, Asia Pacific and a little bit more uh, about uh, not just uh, China's uh, uh, economy and increasing questions about Xi's stewardship of that economy, you know, as you discussed, right, especially the senior most ranks in society where most of the wealth resides, but also some of the people who've taken a very big bath. Although this is across society, right, because Chinese are, are encouraged to invest their money in the growth uh, of, a, of a great nation. Meanwhile, China, <laughs> Beijing is propagating um, the storyline of civil war in Texas. Um, talk to us a little bit about what is it they're doing and whether or not what it is they're doing is going to gain traction. Because I have to tell you something, there's all manner of disinformation out there, right? You know, from the, the, the Canadians are hosting Chinese military bases to, uh, you know, all, all kinds of other uh, uh, stuff about, you know, the, the, you know, the romance between uh, Taylor Swift and Travis uh, Kelsey being a, a Pentagon plot, you know, which the Pentagon has has denied. How, how does this fit into uh, Beijing's motives? And what are some other headlines regionally that we ought to be paying attention to? Sure. I think we're describing uh, a set of conflicting and overlapping trends, technology, the reemergence of geopolitical competition and our own domestic politics. So all of those are clear on, say, the border with Mexico. And you have to start with our own domestic politics, the fear of an invasion from Mexico. Yes, we need a better border, but it's not an invasion. Um, but the idea that we now have this uh, potential standoff between state and federal forces mix in vigilante convoys, um, that that's really good fodder for Chinese uh, social media being fueled by the central uh, party um, and, and replicated in places like Russia and on their propaganda channels. And so you, you end up with what Jake Sullivan's rightly called this age of disruption. And, and we're, we're really feeling that. And we must be aware of it and try to combat it because it, it, it threatens our own uh, prosperity, peace, and democracy. Um, what else is China doing? And there are other you know, headlines 
Um, and well, first, let me uh, say what they're not doing is they're not happy with uh, Argentine uh, uh, soccer star uh, Lionel Messi. And that's because um, he, he didn't show up uh, at a friendly match in Hong Kong, but he suddenly appeared at a fixture in Tokyo. Um, and the Chinese have gone crazy over this, not just in Hong Kong, but across China. Um, and the Chinese government is very unhappy. Uh, and it just shows you that in the soft power realm, and in, uh, they're very sensitive uh, in China about being slighted. Um, contrast that with American soft power. Right now, we're in a, we're in a Taylor Swift world. Uh, you know, she's she's giving the fourth consecutive concert tomorrow night in in Tokyo before she flies back to be at the Super Bowl. Um, and uh, you want to talk about American soft power? I mean, just look at the image she has with these sellout crowds in Asia. Um, America has tremendous uh, potential influence, but our politics are all messed up. Um, and that's where we need to come together. We need to find ways to work uh, on our national interests because the Chinese are hoping uh, that we we falter. They're hoping that the terminal decline that we seem to be exhibiting by our incompetence uh, is something that is a trend that is inevitable and must must happen. I must say that the, the Lunar New Year uh, greetings from Xi Jinping um, were all laced with uh, veiled threats thinly veiled threats uh, toward Taiwan, talking about how, well, now that Hong Kong and and, and Macau have come into to the mainland, uh, we just need to unify uh, and reunify with Taiwan. The Eastern Theater Command put out a video um, where uh, the lyrics are, are quite uh, threatening to Taiwan, talking about unification, reunification, as they call it, is inevitable. Uh, and and uh, when the time comes, we will rise. When the time comes, we will rise. It's a definite threat at the time when the United States has just announced its very first approval from the State Department, still has to go through other channels, uh, of uh, 50 uh, standoff uh, uh, you know, long-range missiles for Taiwan, uh, providing right. them uh, over the next five years. And also, there is a report that we're going to be stationing um, on Kenmen and Matsu uh, offshore islands um, some Green Beret uh, Embedded, embedded with the uh, 101st Amphibious uh, Reconnaissance Battalion of Taiwan. I don't know if that's true or not, but the Chinese are reporting it. Uh, and if so, I think we're likely to still see uh, more friction over over Taiwan. Uh, I, I, I am uh, one of the people who thinks uh, that occasionally doing stuff like that with sovereign nations uh, is a good idea. I think we could have averted Russia's entire invasion had everybody not withdrawn their forces. Uh, the British deserve credit. They redeployed their forces and still maintain some in uh, Ukraine. But I think we should have expanded our troop presence and complicate uh, Russia's planning. What were they going to do? Attack tens of thousands of Western forces that were based in Ukraine, a sovereign nation, at the invitation of its legitimately elected government? Uh, so uh, anyway, but it's it's going to be uh, certainly uh, interesting uh, to uh, watch. Do all of the things that we're seeing domestically in China play into the fears that the weaker China gets, the more dangerous it gets, and that actually its desired lever to change the narrative becomes moving against Taiwan? Well, I, th I think uh, uncertainty, unpredictability, fear uh, don't help stability. Um, so it's not categorical. It's not, it's not clear cut, but I think this doesn't help. I think China's Fears of its economic slowdown are genuinely felt, deeply felt internally. And the fact that they paper over it at an official level so well suggests they don't want anybody to know how scared they are because it, it is hurting. It is really starting right. to hurt. Um, at the same time, this isn't a great time to go on a a, a new venture. Uh, you know, adventurism is costly, as the Russians can, can tell you, even when they think they've got the upper hand at the moment. Um, and... Um, and and I have to say, you know, hey, the sanctions against the Russian economy have only taken out what five seven percent of the, the the wheel, and it hasn't really been felt in Moscow except by some individuals. Um, you know, we have to be realistic about uh, how much this economic uh, drag on China's economy really hurts the Chinese. Yeah, they're not happy. Um, they're depressed even perhaps at this lunar year, but uh, it doesn't mean they're going to go off and invade. It doesn't mean they're going to, you know, they're still looking for deals. And the fact that we had a good economic uh, discussion this week, apparently with our treasury team in Beijing, 
suggests that, you know, they're looking for opportunities as well. And you've got Trump on TV, you know, this past week saying she's my good friend and I can make deals with him even while I'm threatening him with more than 60 percent tariffs across the board. Uh, well, well, well said, Patrick. Uh, Dove, uh, unfortunately, we're winding down and you, too, uh, have got to go uh, in a moment. Um, the president made a statement uh, and uh, reflecting increasing frustration uh, by uh, the White House uh, with uh, Bibi Netanyahu's stance. We now have the Saudis that are getting increasingly frustrated. We were looking at a grand bargain uh, whereby the Saudis were going to recognize Israel and, you know, sort of on the way to a two state solution. Everybody seemed to have gotten that memo except for, I guess, Hamas and Bibi. Uh, who um, maybe are somewhat less inclined to a two-state solution. And Israel is saying 31 of the hostages are now dead uh, of the 130 that were left in captivity, which leaves about 100 hostages alive, we assume, um, and some pressure to release them. Uh, on the other hand, Israel is going into Rafah, uh, uh, in order to try to uh, address that last stronghold where Sinwar is expected to be uh, hiding, assuming he's still in uh, uh, Gaza, uh, which Israeli intelligence can't confirm. And increasingly, the settler movement that is behind Bibi Netanyahu is saying, we're going to resettle Gaza, which then plays into the concern that people have had since the beginning of this, that this was as much about fighting Hamas as making all of Gaza uninhabitable for resettlement, where where are we in this dynamic, um, and and is there any ability by the United States to exert any tough love at all in, in this situation, or you know, and if if not, I I don't know why we're even discussing it. Well, there's a lot to talk about because a lot happened this week, including last night, and that's the tough love that I'll get to uh, at the end. First, as you know. Uh, Hamas finally offered a deal that basically told the Israelis, get out of Gaza, give us back all our prisoners, um, obviously stop the war. Uh, and it was a maximum demand. Uh, even uh, Tony Blinken said it was over the top. It made it very easy for Bibi to say, no, this is ridiculous. But this is uh, uh, rug merchant bargaining. So that's only the beginning there. The Saudi statement's pretty important. Uh, because what the Saudis have now said, essentially, and I wrote a piece about that that appeared this morning in The Hill, um, they've said, don't take us for granted, because uh, uh, the White House had essentially said, um, we're still talking to the Saudis about normalization. And the Saudis said, heck no, uh, we're not going to normalize unless there's a Palestinian state capital in East Jerusalem, uh, 67 borders. Uh, very much going back to what uh, Crown Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia had proposed in 2002, which was called the Arab Peace Initiative. Right. And in fact, it was even worse than that, because the peace initiative had said there'd be small swaps of land. This statement said <clears throat> didn't even say anything about that at all. So the Saudis are, are essentially saying, Mr. Netanyahu, you're dreaming about dealing with us. Don't even think about it unless there's a Palestinian state. Meanwhile, um, on top of all of that, uh, the president, and this is the tough love thing, last night issued a national security memorandum that says that recipients of U.S. military aid to, uh, have to issue certifications that they're complying with humanitarian aid and international law. Guess who that is aimed at? Now, officially, of course, it's not just Israel, but who do you think is the one that's right now getting that and being criticized for violating international law and preventing humanitarian aid? So, slowly but surely, I think Biden is starting to, to squeeze Bibi because he recognizes that just talking about it isn't going to do anything. One thing statement, though, that really uh, did resonate with a lot of people was when Tony Blinken said in Israel that, uh, yes, what Hamas did was dehumanizing, but, and I'm quoting here, that cannot be a license to dehumanize others. So, again, more evidence that the rhetoric is getting stronger on the one hand, and by signing that memorandum last night, uh, Bibi should be getting a signal that Biden's support is not going to be unconditional anymore. And finally, one last thing internal to Israel. Uh, they are going to be increasing. Be, they want to increase the age of reservists, which already is pretty old. 
And what that means is that reservists are going to have to spend more time in the military. It's going to keep them out of their normal work jobs. And oh, by the way, the resentment against the ultra-Orthodox who aren't doing anything apart from a few thousand, and, and there's so many more of them, uh, is just growing as well. So the splits in Israel that were papered over when Hamas attacked are starting to appear again. Um, do, uh, last uh, question, uh, very briefly, because we, we do have to go. Um, do you think that part of the broader strategic aim is to actually settle Gaza? or parts of Gaza, or reintroduce Israeli settlements to Gaza. How severe and serious a complication is that at a time when the Saudis, I mean, I think it's Antony Blinken's deaf diplomacy that's keeping the Saudis from totally going bananas on this. Well, I think that's right. Um, look, uh, the extreme right wing wants to resettle Gaza. They've had uh, meetings about this. They had a convention about this. By and large, BB uh, is in tune with the extreme right. They're just uh, they're just his spokespeople, so that he can have uh, some kind of uh, credible denial. But on this one, it's not clear. And and the reason I say that is that um, a it's going to be extremely difficult to kick all the Gazans out. B if the Israelis even try that. That's the end of American support. We're we're just not going to support ethnic cleansing. Uh, and see, Bibi himself, I think he's much more interested in prolonging the war than settling Gaza, because in a sense, settling Gaza is one uh, one uh, uh, alternative to um, f- several that would involve what happens next in Gaza. And if you've noticed, Bibi doesn't want to say a thing about what happens next in Gaza, because that implies that he's got a plan for when the war ends. And he doesn't want to talk about the war ending. Uh, Indeed. Uh, Gentlemen, thanks very much. I hope you guys have a great day, a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thank you. And thanks very much to the audience uh, for joining us. And a reminder to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Canvas Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Aerospace, who help clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Wincher, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Uh, The next time we'll be together, will be for the business roundtable on Sunday. Uh, Don't miss it. Uh, And until then, hope everybody has uh, a great weekend and be well. See you again soon. Thanks very much.